I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series, brought to you today by Yetter Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With the tradition of providing farmers solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O dot com. Betsy Bauer may be a household name amongst farmers in her home state of Indiana. As a longtime agronomist with Siri Solutions, she's helped scores of farmers with nutrient management, crop protection, irrigation, and all manner of cropping issues while implementing conservation measures such as no-till and cover crops. A true problem solver, Bauer was named a No-Till Innovator Award winner in 2016 by No-Till Farmer. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast series, I caught up with Betsy to get an agronomist's viewpoint on no-till and cover crops. Join us as she talks about her approach to working with farmers as they tackle issues like soil loss, compaction, nutrient retention and timing, residue management, finding positive solutions in the face of adverse weather, adopting new practices, and much more. Betsy, thanks so much for joining me. Why don't you give me just a little bit of background about yourself and how you got interested in agronomy? Sure. I have been an agronomist for over 26 years. Being involved in agriculture was always something that I wanted to do. It was just something that was, my dad happened to work for an ag retailer and was an ag teacher. So I sort of followed him and his interests, although those interests were mine as well. And from about the age of four, I knew that I needed to do something in agriculture. Didn't quite know exactly what it was at the time. And then agronomy really interested me. And so as I looked at opportunities, and that was several years back. My thought was with animals, they move, they can be dangerous, all of those good things. And plants sort of stay where you put them. They may not always be healthy, but they sort of stay there. So (laughs) then I got interested in identifying weeds, understanding how crops work. And so I went to Purdue and got a degree in agronomy, but thought that I needed a little extra background to work with farmers one-on-one. So I got a master's in agronomy from the University of Nebraska. And so from there, I came back to Indiana and became what was is called a crop specialist. A lot of times that term is referred to agronomist, but we looked at the crop specialist as the agronomist, the one with a little bit more technical detail. So I started out as a crop specialist working with farmers one-on-one with crop nutrition and crop protection and whatever they were trying to be successful at. And then I worked for a national company by the name of Zeneca, then then was rolled into Syngenta. And as we all know, Syngenta has changed over the years. I came back to Growers Co-op at the time as an agronomist. And at that time, some of the other larger cooperatives were employing agronomists. And an agronomist is one that helps the whole organization understand agronomy programs. So I'm the technical arm, which means that if a farmer's got a specific 
issue that a crop specialist don't feel that they have the background, they call me. Or it also helps us sort of be more efficient overall with our agronomic programs by helping choose the best things for our set of growers or our soil situations, etc. And so I've been an agronomist ever since. Growers merge with two other cooperatives to become Serious Solutions. And so I've been with Serious Solutions ever since. And in fact, Serious Solutions does have three agronomists on staff. We cover different territories within Serious Solutions. Serious Solutions is an organization that's sort of up and down the western side of Indiana to north central Indiana and five or six counties in Michigan. And so you have said that no two days are really alike in your job. Can you just give us a sense of the range of different things that you might do in a typical week or month or even a year? As an agronomist, again, as I've indicated, I'm sort of the technical arm, but I do have some direct responsibilities with our irrigation services. And so some of the things that I'm going to be working on regarding the irrigation services is we use soil moisture probes to determine when we need to irrigate. We also pair that with some tissue sampling and soil sampling so that we can make a better fertigation recommendation. And I'm pretty proud of that program because we've been able to reduce our front loading of nitrogen and some of our irrigated crops and push that into the cropping season a little bit more so we get a little bit more efficient use of that fertilizer input. We're also a little bit more sure that because you've got a growing plant, we're going to get it into the crop. And so it's been a program that I think has fit our irrigated customer quite well. But also we will be doing tissue sampling, soil sampling in season so that we're monitoring that in-season nutrition in the crop and where that nitrogen is in the soil. So there might be extra needed nutrition or there may not be. And that's some of the things that we're trying to monitor. So we do a lot of taking a test, learning what the test has to say to help us make that recommendation. Not always are we just putting a prophylactic application of nutrition on because we think we need it. We're measuring it so that we've got a better idea of what that customer needs. So in the summertime, it's heavily geared at that growing crop with some of my work is, as well as doing some of the diagnostics on the farm, answering questions by phone from customers and from our crop specialists on various issues during the year. And so it could be anything from crop protection to crop nutrition to cover crops to conservation systems, no-till, to conventional till, just a wide range of agronomy topics. In the fall, we're typically planning that next season in our planning mode, so to speak, looking at the results of last year's crop with some of the additions that we made or some of the services that we offered, and then deciding what's going to fit for our customers going next year. In the wintertime, it's heavily planning loaded. So working with growers one-on-one on, they may have made their nutrition decision, they may have made their seed decision. They may have made their crop protection decision, but there's times that you can really dive into some of the things that they want to do long-term on their farm. So there's a few branches that take me with them one-on-one and we just do a deep dive into directions that a customer wants to go. And some of those decisions might not change for the coming year, but customers need to be thinking about that next step for their operation two or three years and ahead because you change one thing on the farm and it's going to also change other aspects of the farm. So they're really need to get their arms wrapped around it to make those decisions. So that's sort of a year in a nutshell with doing some of the agronomics in the season, following up and getting ready for our next season, as well as helping farmers plan overall and on all aspects of uh, corn and soybean wheat agronomy. Yeah. Okay. And so do you even get in-depth selecting varieties or hybrids with some of them or no? 
And yeah, that's not really my strong suit. Crop nutrition, protecting the crop, the irrigated acre, some of those are going to be more my specialties. And that's what at Serious Solutions, each one of our agronomists has a different specialty. So mm-hmm. all of our crop specialists have access to any of us, but they also understand, okay, Betsy deals with weed in the southern part of the state. She probably has a little bit better idea of how we make decisions on wheat. And so they might call me on wheat okay. or other aspects. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I'm sort of curious with COVID this year, have a lot of your meetings and whatnot gone virtual or are you still doing a lot of face-to-face with the farmers? Well, it depends on the comfort level of the farmer. We are using Zoom meetings to work with customers. We work with Trutera of Land Lakes, and that is a program that can easily be done by a Zoom meeting where we can discuss a farmer's crop production practices and his conservation practices all in sort of one little vehicle. And we did do a lot of that. But we're doing some one-on-one meetings on the farm and trying to stay socially distanced. There's nothing like working with people one-on-one, but it certainly is at the comfort level of our customer. And I am sure to ask at the outset, how could a meeting take place that is to your comfort level? We know in Indiana and agriculture is one of the important industries. And so COVID didn't affect us as much because as an industry of producing food, we just didn't have some of those things that we needed to do that other industries have done. That's not to say that we aren't careful. I mean, we wear masks, we socially distance, we do all of those things and keep our people and our customers safe. Sure. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that, Trutera. I was just curious. Can you just talk about that program a little bit more? And what are some of the insights that farmers are gaining from that tool? Trutera is an online platform by Land Lakes. It allows us to document cropping practices on the farm, the types of tillage, the use of cover crops, how a customer harvests a crop. Does he start with harvest early and then dries corn? What are his yields? What is his nutrient management program? Does he split apply in? Does he use nitrogen stabilizers? What type of crop protection does he use? Is he using conservation practice like filter strips or any of the conservations, the NRCS conservation practices? We'll put it at that. And so it sort of folds that up in one program, documents that. And then the underlying forces are the natural lay of the land, the landscape. And so So it allows us to gain insights on his cropping practices, on his landscape, to get a feel for what is the average soil loss due to his cropping practices. Are we improving soil quality overall with practices? What are the average net GHG or greenhouse gas emissions? Are there things that we can do to improve an insight score? What is the insight score for a particular field? And are there things that we can do to improve the insight score if the customer will do so? It's a program that allows us not only to document, but then have a better conservation conversation on the farm. And so that has been sort sort of some of the key take-homes. The guys that are enrolled in our program are doing a lot of conservation practices. They look at it as an opportunity to document what they're doing. If they're growing white corn and they think that where they're selling their white corn that's using that corn, if they think that there's going to be a premium at some point in time, they want to start documenting those practices now. So they're looking at it as a way to start to take advantage of some of the things that they're doing on a farm and documenting it for future need. Okay. And so that's a program. So when they have access to that data all the time, 
They can. Yeah, yeah. They can get a login themselves. We do help put the data in. That's sort of um, at this point in time, what's the value proposition to a farmer? Not getting paid for an insight score as of yet. But those that are in understand that on down the road with some of the sustainability discussions of companies, having some of that information already documented could be advantageous to them in the future. It has been a partnership between us and the grower to help them document that info if they can get us the info. So we sort of look at it as a shared opportunity. Yeah. Okay. That's not at this point on the back end, like connected to any kind of a carbon credits program, but it all sounds like it could be at some point. Yes. Yes. It's not a, yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Okay, good. So you've been a big supporter of no-till and cover crops for a long time. What really got you interested in those practices in the first place? As I started my career as an agronomist 25, 26 years ago, a lot of my customers that I was working with were looking at no-till systems at the time. In the area of Indiana that I started, it wasn't necessarily some of the best ground, so to speak. And so the growers were sort of between a hot rock and a hard place. They know that they needed to reduce some of the things that they were purchasing on the farm. One of them was labor. Another one of them was a machiner and the time it takes to do some tillage. So a lot of those guys got into no-till, not necessarily for the wonderful things that no-till does, more for the economics and all the wonderful aspects that no-till brings to the table sort of came for free. And so I've always been a type of agronomist that wanted to try to figure out things, wanted to learn right along with my customer. If he or she has a question about a certain practice, what can I do to help learn about that practice and help he or she be very successful in that practice? So no-till was one of the things, adding starters to no-till, etc. And then about so 10 or 15 years ago, then we started looking at cover crops and cover crops were new. They're pretty exciting. They look to offer some opportunities for some of our landscapes in the predominant set of customers that I work with. And so learning about cover crops, just learning right along with them. We figured that between the two or three of us together, we certainly could learn more together than we could separately. And so that's sort of where the interest had come. And then as you learn with them and you see some positive results to no-till and cover crops, then you can take some of those learning and help others that start to get interested. Okay, good. Can you share an example of how you've seen no-till and or cover crops make a financial impact for a farmer's bottom line? Oh, certainly. A couple of years ago, it seemed like if I heard it once, I heard it 10 times that the use of cover crops are helping farmers reduce their overall crop protection inputs because that cover crop that they terminate in the spring still has some competitive advantage with weeds, they are able to, number one, see exactly where a field was cover cropped and where it wasn't because of the reduction in weeds, but also they may only need a pre-plant or an at-plant application of a soil residual. They may not necessarily need another post Or if they do need a little bit of a post-emergence application, it might be just relegated to the end rows or not the whole field. So that has been an immediate aha moment for a lot of guys. 
And then some of the other things is I work with a customer that had been tilled for several years. He is a strip tiller and started strip tilling, but the ground was still really hard. When we would try to put in the probe, I mean, we just really had a tough time drilling the hole to get the probe in. And I suggested he grow a cover crop and he took me up on it. And we could see an immediate relief in it wasn't as hard to drill that soil moisture probe in. He got deeper roots. We didn't have to manage just the upper 12 inches because his roots were growing deeper. If his roots are growing deeper, he's able to access more water, thus less irrigation. So some of those have been some of the take-homes to cover crops. We can see reductions in some of our soybean pests, such as SCN or sudden death. We've seen some of those over the years as well. Oh, that's great. So when faced with that sort of perennial question, do cover crops pay, you would say yes. Yes, I would say yes. I would also, the caveats that it does take a few years to develop your system on the farm. So even though I am a strong proponent of cover crops, I also am very conservative in setting up good expectations and following through, taking it one step at a time, because I've taken farmers too fast along that pathway. It doesn't always work out well, but those are the things that we learn along the way. And most farmers understand that knowing that not everything is perfect. And so you learn from the mistakes that you have and you make that next fail-safe decision for the coming cropping system and your next year's. Okay, good. Do you ever have to sort of rein in a farmer and say, if he's really gung-ho and wants to do something, say, well, let's try it on a smaller scale first. Do you ever do oh, yeah. that? Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, let's try it on a smaller scale. Let's try to go slower so that you've got the benefits of the system that you're developing. I did have a customer that did want to go too quickly and couldn't follow through with just time-wise, soil-wise, couldn't follow through with the best recommendation at the time, it did have a negative impact. And so we learned from that. And so my mistake was probably he wanted to go that direction. I was willing to go with him, but we probably went faster than what we should on that operation. Sure. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And having that ability to see a program through is really important because otherwise we have that bad experience and then you don't want to do it again, right? Yeah, exactly. And luckily, even the one with the bad experience, I still am working with them. They're exceedingly happy with the rest of the direction of the farm. Cover crops have taken somewhat of a backseat, but they're ready to start again. While it wasn't as much fun the few years, we still continued to work together. They knew that they were getting good service and we were learning other things that needed to happen. We just went too fast. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. We'll get back to the conversation with Betsy in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for supporting today's episode. With the tradition of providing solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to Betsy Bauer as she talks about lessons learned from Indiana's widespread prevent plant acreage in 2019. Mm -hmm. 
also, Indiana has had some challenging weather. I mean, a lot of states have, but in 2019 in particular, there was a huge amount of prevent plant acres because of how wet it was in the spring. Yes. What were some of the lessons learned from dealing with those challenging circumstances? Well, some of the lessons learned is how we could keep cover crops growing. And again, that's going to be in a well-established system, a system where guys have been cover cropping and no-tilling for a few years, that that allowed us to reduce some of that moisture, that early season moisture, because cover crops took up the moisture while we didn't necessarily plant when we wanted to, we could get in there a little bit sooner. We got the ability to try cover crops on acres that we never would have tried on cover crops before. So there were some instrumental programs allow growers to grow cover crops and get a feel for them that year because we had that prevent plant. So that was sort of lucky. So we got to see some cover crops planted in June and we got to see them or at the end of May to June and then at the end of July into earlier, so planted earlier than they ever had been. We learned that we can plant corn and soybeans a little later and still have a positive return on investment. We learned also that we needed to ensure that the crop nutrition was what it needed to be at that point in time too, but those were some of the learnings. So how late into the season were you planting corn and soybeans? In some areas in Indiana, we didn't start planting till June 3rd. And luckily, they had a good dry week and they could get it done by June 7th. But those were areas in northern Indiana that probably, they really pushed it for their window. We planted corn until 10th or 15th in other areas and even later in the southern part of the state. And we've been able to double crop seed corn sometimes. It's not common at all, but double cropping after wheat. We do have a window opportunity that you could make it. It's not ideal in the southern part of the state. So we were a little bit more confident in the South what we could realize regarding yield with corn. And then soybeans, I mean soybeans because we do a lot of double cropping of soybeans with wheat and we were confident into July. And we did see some good yields from late planted beans. So it would have been way after a normal wheat harvest that did end up producing well. So for a more normal year at the beginning of the planting season, what are you favoring these days? You know, some people are saying you can plant beans before corn. And so what are your thoughts on that? Beans before uh, corn or, or not? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that's some of the things that we're finding with some of the genetics that we're using is that an early planted bean, when I look at some of the yield data that I've seen using the Tutera tool, it's sort of really been amazing that the high shielding beans are always the earliest planted beans. They've just got more time to do all of their processes. They've got more time for grain fill. And we don't have the negative impact on planting corn a little later. I do think that we've learned a lot more about nutrition when we need to have the nutrition applied. And so I think we're more comfortable with the genetics that we have today that we can wait and plant those a little later. Every corn plant coming up at the same time is actually of more benefit perhaps than planting early with some of our genetics. I'm not going to say all genetics, but those are some of the things that we've learned. Yeah. Great. I've read that you're doing some research on soil fertility and agronomic factors that affect yield. What can you tell us about that? Over the last 10 years, what we've learned a lot of about was the value of sulfur in our corn and soybean systems. And in corn, we also have learned the value of early season zinc and perhaps on our high yield systems, boron. So we've been learning more about those secondary nutrients and their influence on nitrogen efficiency. Nitrogen and sulfur play hand in hand, and especially in our sandy soils when we know we can't keep either one of those around because of movement through water, we've learned to 
to apply more than one time for nitrogen and sulfur both. And then when you add those two together, that efficiency that occurs has been sort of one of the ahas for us. Now, what we did do to begin with was take a tissue test. We found the sulfur deficiency. And so we've used that information to help farmers change their systems around. Luckily, sulfur, it's not a super expensive spend. And when you do spend it, your return on investment is typically really good with that spend. But just learning how to use some of our sulfur products to see that bang for the buck. Zinc is one of those that we've learned that really helps set us up early for nutrition moving through the plant. And so getting it around the seed has been very important. And then boron, just having it where we need to have it. And there can be different times for boron. It's a little more of a discussion with the farmer on how does he manage his nutrition to make the best recommendations for everything. But those have been some of the nutrition things that we've learned. We put on potassium and sometimes even phosphorus once the crop is up. That's another one of our learnings. We are feeling more confident on. So we can change in order from the logistics side of things. It doesn't hurt to put some of those products on in a growing crop. We do have application units that allow us to do that. But we found some efficiencies in soybeans as well as in corn with being able to layer some of the nutrition, especially in soils that it can move a little bit more readily. Okay. All right. Let's talk a little bit more about nutrient management because obviously it's a big issue. It's one of the biggest costs for farmers and then some nutrients get tied up easily while others are prone to leaching and ending up in the waterways. And you mentioned this and I know a lot of farmers talk about wanting to reduce inputs. So is that a realistic goal for a lot of farmers? And if so, what strategies are you suggesting for that? That's somewhat of a tough question because uh, you really need to understand the farmer's system, how he applies his nutrition, just how he manages nutrition overall. You need to understand his soil tests, what are his normal yields, etc. So reducing nutrient loads are certainly a way to potentially reduce potential nutrients moving off target. But then I also want to counter that with if we've got ways that we can apply the nutrients more timely, more applications, potentially depending on the system. Again, it all depends on the system where we're sure that we can get that nutrient into the crop. That's probably one of the easiest ways that you can reduce overall nutrition because you're getting the nutrients there right when the crop needs it. It's not going to take the nutrients that it took if you were applying it pre-plant. So if you take those hand in hand, that's certainly a way that we can look at reducing overall nutrition. But it does take understanding how the farmer operates. Can he do things timely? If the retailer is doing it, can we do things timely? Because uh, getting some of our important nutrients on like nitrogen, sulfur a little bit too later are not always good either. Okay. And over the years, I think we've seen a lot less fall applied nitrogen. Yes. What are you seeing? And are there times when fall applied nitrogen still makes sense? So fall applied nitrogen, it is a concerning because nitrogen is so mobile. We are rain fed in Indiana. It is pretty concerning. If guys are going to apply fall nitrogen, certainly needs to be as we're getting colder into the fall, as well as using a nitrogen stabilizer. Big believer in all of those things. Early in the spring, a nitrogen stabilizer, because we aren't going to need the bulk of that nitrogen until June and July. You can't always predict where it's going to be. But probably one of the more successful ways to apply fall applied nitrogen is only 
apply a portion of the nitrogen that you're going to apply, maybe 100 pounds. So that gets you set off into the spring. You've got it stabilized. And then you come in and side dress for some of the additional nitrogen that you were going to do. That's probably the most environmentally savvy, efficiency, thinking through the whole fall nitrogen dilemma. That makes sense. And then what about, I've seen there's several new products out that are microbes that are nitrogen enhancing or nitrogen sequestering. Have you had any experience with those or have you done some research or what do you know about how those are working? My formal training would not necessarily lend well to the microbials. However, I am confident that there is some of our newer microbials There probably is going to be something there. We're just going to need to learn how to use them. We're going to need to understand some of the newer products that indicate that you can reduce your nitrogen load because it is actually fixing nitrogen in the soil. They certainly could possibly work. Will they work in every environment? Can it be a practice that works for every farmer? I'm not sure yet. Mm-hmm. I get the opportunity to start to work with some microbials that are breaking down some of the heavy residues from corn to improve our plantability of corn on corn, as well as soybeans after corn in our no-till systems. If we can keep sequester the nutrition that they're helping to break down from those residues, that could be very positive. It could easily pay for itself. If you get corn all up at the same time, you get ear placement good, you're in the hunt for high yields. And so using some of those products to do some of that could be possible. We just need to work with them, test them. I have hope. I'm interested in them. I know the soil microbiome is extremely large and some of the products we may not be applying enough of the microbial at the time. So right now I know enough to be dangerous. Right. And so now there's a whole host of organizations that are getting on board with the latest efforts to reward farmers for sequestering carbon in the soil. Uh, What are your thoughts on the carbon markets and agriculture's potential to sequester that carbon for the long haul? Well, I think it certainly looks like an opportunity. I mean, we have guys that are doing a lot of those practices because it works on their farm. The ability to sequester, we've got a lot of land base in the Midwest and in Indiana. We're doing some very good work to do some of that. And if there's an opportunity for them to gain some additional income from the practices that they've chosen to do that uh, right now no one's getting paid for, I'm positive to it. I think agriculture could be a big help to some of the climate change issues that we're dealing with. I do believe that it will be taking all of us working together, working as partners to understand everything. I'm lucky that I, in Indiana that we do have a lot of different partnerships and, and we learn from each other. We sort of go at problems from a different perspective, but we can muddle out some solutions and learn along the way. Yeah, absolutely. Just looking back on your 25-year history, how have farmers' needs shifted and how has your job changed? I think what we're still trying to harness is the power of technology. I do know that some of the technology that they have on implements certainly have taken some of the strain, some of the driving systems that they have. GPS has definitely allowed us to get product where it needs to be, and we sort of know where it needs to be. We can measure that in the soil using some of that technology. I do think we're still trying to figure out how do we make ourselves more efficient overall? How do we use the 
information that the technology is delivering to make better decisions. I think we'll just continue to learn on all of those things. So farmers, how have they changed? I mean, it's certainly gotten more complex, some of the new seed technologies and some of the crop protection products and some of our nutritional product and being able to sort of put them on at a in-time need, I think has been fascinating. I think it allows us to be more efficient and reduce the overall potential negative impacts on the environment. I think all of that is really exciting and I feel lucky to have been able to witness a lot of this along the way and hope to do more. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Well, I think that's about it. Do you have any final thoughts for our no-tillers? Yeah, keep learning on your farm. Keep asking questions. Keep asking questions to your agronomic advisors, whether they be an independent crop consultant or an ag retailer, to help them learn it all as well. You know, sometimes some of your consultants need to be brought along as well, but don't be afraid to try new products and services that you think might be an advantage on your farm. But keep learning, keep asking questions, keep pushing to learn more. Great. Well, thank you. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Julie. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much and uh, have a great day. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks to Betsy Bauer of Siri Solutions for this conversation. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland no-tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at no-till farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our no-till farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at no-till farmer, I'm managing editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.